Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with a friend who we've been waiting to have on the podcast for a while. Her name is Sharon Leggio Falchuk. She is a functional medicine health coach at Intended Wellness, and she's living with chronic Lyme. And she's going to talk to us all about what got her into health coaching and her chronic Lyme story. She's living in a flare at the moment, hopefully on the (laughs) tail end of things. So Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's awesome. I've felt a connection with you from the beginning. So I appreciate this. And we have our friend Nitika Chopra to thank thank for that because she actually introduced us. So exactly. uh, we're very lucky to have her in our lives. So, you know, we love to start at the top of the story here. Mm-hmm. And I would love it if you could share with our listeners when and how you first realized that you were sick, that you had something going on and, and what you've done to address that and begin treatment since then. Sure. So it goes way back. I mean, I really didn't feel well from the time I was born, but when that's your experience in life, you don't realize that's not normal. So it took me a long time to realize that wasn't normal. I mean, I always knew like, you know, most of my flares were digestive in nature as a kid. Um, So I was always sort of told that was just the digestion in our family. Like you just unfortunately got the, you know, the family stomach Um, but I had other weird stuff too, like migraines when I was in second grade and lots of weird aches and pains and neurological visual stuff. And, um, so I just kind of went through childhood, you know, was in and out of emergency rooms somewhat. Um, and they always told my parents, I must've caught a virus or a bug of some sort, you know, as kids do. So it was just really passed off most of my life that I was sick, um, And especially once people realized that I was a very um, emotional person, like I was highly sensitive. So then it always just sort of became that it was in my head and I was overreacting maybe to people being mean to me or, you know, had a nervous stomach or whatever, you know. 
Um, so you were written off for your age and your gender at yeah, that point. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. Like I was so cute, you know, the little pat on the head, like, okay, yeah. just go home and have some ginger ale and toast or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. The eighties cure-all. <laughs> exactly. It's like toast. Now that I know I'm gluten sensitive would have like the worst, worst advice idea. ever. <laughs> so it probably kept me in flare ups longer. The advice I was given, you know? Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I went off to college and had major flares and, um, would go to the, go to either the campus, you know, medical center, or there was a hospital nearby. Um, and they just started to know like, okay, we're seeing the symptoms. So we're just going to treat the symptoms. So they just were like, Mm -hmm. oh, you have digestive issues. We're putting you on an acid blocker. Oh, you have migraines. We're going to put you on, um, you know, a headache medication. And then they, that's, that's pretty much all I got. And then I did have a really good friend whose mother was a doctor and she was like, all right, I'm, I'm just going to have you come in for an appointment and just run everything. And she's like, I don't know why your inflammatory markers are like super high. Um, and so she, so she had on. the wherewithal to, to test your inflammatory markers in the first place. Exactly. Is, I mean, at that point, kind of revolutionary probably. Yeah. It was like 99, 2000. So yeah, uh, that was kind of crazy. Um, but again, kind of like, I don't know why. So I, then I had a third medication, which was Celebrex to take the inflammation down, but at least it did sort of break the pattern. Another really Mm -hmm. interesting thing that happened during that time was, um, one of my many symptoms was ringing in the ears Um, and so my mom took me to an ear, nose and throat specialist and, um, you know, again, they did all the testing and they're like, oh, your hearing's perfect. Like there's nothing wrong. Um, and I happened to just be walking out of the doctor's office that day with another, you know, nothing wrong with you kind of result. And this nurse came up to me and she's like, I'm sorry, do you have a minute? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, I think he's available, but there's a doctor I would really like you to meet. And I was like, okay. So she went in and he, sure enough, he was available and she had me go in and he was an ear, nose and throat specialist. Um, and I kind of gave him the high level version of what I'd been experiencing, the headaches, the ringing in the ears, the weird stuff. And he laid me down and he, so he did craniosacral therapy and, Um, and thank God for this nurse. It's always the nurses, isn't it? It's like, yeah, she listened and she said, check with this guy. Like she had the insider knowledge. She directed you the right way. Like, thank you, nurse. Exactly. And I literally was in in a position of like 20th doctor who says nothing's wrong with you and leaving the appointment, you know? Mm. And, um, my mom was with me and, and so she had no idea what he was doing. And she's like, I didn't know what he was doing. It was so weird, but when I sat up, it was like, I had a new head on my shoulders. Um, and so, and this was in the middle of Vermont, he was in central Vermont. Um, so you definitely don't expect anything new or cutting edge in Vermont, you know, where Mm. I grew up. Um, and I was going to college about an hour and 15 minutes from there in Burlington, Vermont. Um, and so my mom every week would drive, make the long drive up to get me and take me to these appointments. And it was the thing that moved the needle the most for me at that point. Wow. Um, that's all I had to go And on. totally holistic. Yeah, totally. Like it was literally just m- manipulation. This, you know, with this guy's two hands. Um, so that was sort of my first kind of, oh, there's more to this than, you know, 
I never grew up thinking outside of you trust doctors. They're the, they're so better than you. They're, they went to school for so many years. They're the wise ones. They're geniuses. Common narrative that we hear. Yeah. It's totally modeled for us. And then we just kind of run with it ourselves usually. Um, but then, you know, I went through college and all that and kind of continued my roller coaster of flares. I didn't know they were flares. I was just like, this is just me. Um, and then in 2008, I had my son and, uh, you know, the thinking back on it, my pregnancy was very difficult. I had serious morning sickness. Like I had to go on short-term disability. Wow. Yeah. I could not stop vomiting. And, um, and I also bled and I wasn't supposed to, and I had all these kind of weird difficulties. And then he was born and had severe jaundice. Like I did when I was born and I was like, Oh no, he's like physically like me that can't happen, you know, cause I was born with digestive issues basically. Mm. So yeah, that started the real journey of like putting pieces together for him that then started to put some pieces together for me. So I was just like, the doctors are like, no, nothing wrong with him. Like they did all the tests and I'm like, and you were smart enough to know that like, you're not going to be told the same thing twice yeah, as well. I wasn't going through this again. You know, I just knew like, I don't care what I have to do. I'm not going through this again. So, um, you know, when they told me that there's nothing wrong and nothing I should do, I'm like, well, does it matter what I'm eating since I'm breastfeeding? And they're like, that's not going to make a difference. Like, we oh my did, God, <laughs> they're like, we did. It was like this old, old gastroenterologist, this old guy. And they're like, we tested him for dairy allergy. It came back normal. Like there's oh, nothing. Man. And I was just like, okay, I'm just, I left there and I'm like, I'm just doing what my mother instinct tells me to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I cut out dairy. I cut out soy and he like finally started to gain weight. Cause I had to take him every two days to be weighed because he wouldn't gain weight. Like it was oh. scary. It was really bad. Um, very stressful. I had serious postpartum anxiety. Um, sure. Yeah. It was awful. Um, and then I think because of the kind of the stressful new mom experience and you're not getting sleep and all that, um, within a year and a half, a little closer to two years, um, after he was born, I just completely crashed. I also am almost a hundred percent sure that I was reinfected in my yard. I got bitten again wow. by a tick as an adult, as an adult. So I think my childhood issues with Lyme. I lived on Long Island and had ticks on us a lot. And we never knew that they carried disease back in the early 80s. And we had moved mm. away from there by the time they figured it out. So nobody ever put those two things together that I lived but on Long you Island. Also, you had these problems from birth. Do you think that was something that could have been passed to you from your mother as well? Mm -hmm. So I think there's two things. I think there's two possibilities, which is one, I was born with um, compromised digestion, which then affected my immune system to be able to handle the, the bites or that there is Lyme in my family line that was passed to me. And then I passed it to my son. Um, because I mean, we know that the Lyme bacteria is ancient. They found it in the Iceman in the Italian Alps had the Lyme bacteria in him. What? Um, I had no yeah. idea about that. Yeah. Otzi, the Iceman. <gasps> Yeah. And so when they found it, it's actually, they, we've gained a really, a really important piece of information about Lyme from him because though they don't think it, it caused his death, he had been like, my son now studied Otzi this year, which was really interesting. Wow. Um, I'm like, tell your teacher he had Lyme disease. Like nobody wow. wanted to hear it. Um, but yeah, it's not what killed him. He got attacked, they think, by, by maybe um, somebody who was trying to steal his stuff. But um, 
they now understand that Lyme, the Lyme bacteria can cause osteoporosis within months of being infected. So that's really what they learned um, primarily from finding it in Otzi is that like the Lyme bacteria, you know, goes into the bone and what it does to the bone. So, um, so yeah, I think it's a really old, really old bacteria. Of course, things mutate and change over the years. We have, you know, stronger versions of it. We have different tick-borne illnesses than maybe we had before. But I think the problem is, I think a lot of people probably carry the bacteria and then it's all about environment and things that happen along the way that make it maybe, you know, your body gets, loses having the upper hand over it. We have so many assaults on our system now from the toxic foods to the constant EMFs to all those things that the body just says, you know what, the scale is now tipped out of balance and the Lyme gets a chance to kind of do its thing. And then re- getting mm-hmm. reinfected getting on an top extraneous of it. illness of some sort doesn't help. Have um, you had your son tested for Lyme since all his stuff started? Yeah, I haven't. I, that was like, uh, that was one of the biggest decisions I made. Hmm. Um, I was really tempted because again, he had not just the severe jaundice, he had nursing issues. He had um, neurologic, weird neurological stuff. He couldn't stand hmm. loud noises or, you know, bright lights. There was definitely stuff that pointed to it. And I had talked to my Lyme doctor and she, I was like, okay, if I found out he does have it, what would I do? And it would be like, her approach was heavy duty antibiotics for long periods of time. And I'm like, I don't know. It just didn't sit right with me. And I was like, I just, what would I do differently if I knew he had Lyme? Well, one, it would cause me severe angst. It would cause me and is it worth so the anxiety? Much, yeah, that it would cause me so much pain. And and I think as I talked to you before, um, I think a lot of us have Lyme. I think that for me, um, whether I know if I'll ever be cured of it or not, I may not ever know that. It's about living the healthiest life I can so that it's not a problem for me. And so I decided mm-hmm. for my son's sake, I need to do the same for him. So he's gluten-free. He's mostly dairy-free. Um, you know, and there are, these are easy things to do. They're approachable things to do in in the world we live in now. Yeah. And it's about, as you say, that homeostasis, which is what many LLMDs are sort of working to get their patients toward, not necessarily to cure Lyme because we don't know if there's really a cure quote unquote cure, but that if we can get the body to some place where there's more balance and you can live comfortably and happily. Yeah. I mean, I think that for every, then that's what I, my, it took a lot of mindset work to get to that point because it really scared me for a long time. And then I was like, you know what, I have this information and if God forbid at some point he starts to show that he's really sick in some way, then I know that I can go to that first. But if he's developing, I mean, in school and and physically and every other way, he's developed fine, um, except for vaccine reactions, unfortunately, but, um, Mm. Yeah. So I just have sort of kept it in my back pocket as like a data point, but I'm not going to let it kind of rule our lives or have me make a decision to put him on some sort of protocol that could be really difficult for him. So that's sort of just where I've landed on it for now, but it's always something that I sort of keep an open mind about, you know? Mm, uh, Well, that's really important. So I'm wondering at what point you actually got your Lyme diagnosis and what that was like for you emotionally, like having a name to put on this thing. I mean, was that a positive experience or was it actually one that you were like, Oh God, what do we do now? 
It was a mix. Yeah. So I will never forget it. Um, so again, it was 2011 and I had a small toddler at home and I couldn't get out of bed and I was going down the drain really fast. I couldn't digest my food. I lost like 25 pounds in a month. Um, and my heart rate was always super high. And I just, I couldn't, I had no, I I had no control over my body. Like it was just kind of going down fast. And, um, I'm here in the Boston area. I went to, you know, more than 15 doctors here, every specialist, some like two rheumatologists or two endocrinologists. And all of them were like, there's nothing wrong with you. And, um, (laughs) there's nothing wrong with you, even though you feel like shit. Congratulations. Thanks so much guys. I'm like, yeah, I just, a fun pastime for me is going to the doctor. I'm just here for, you know. Yeah, for shits and giggles. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's just a fun pastime I've picked up. Um, Yeah, so I got the whole, you're just a like, you know, new mom who's just tired and. Great. Oh, that's really uh, wonderful. So then they were writing you off because you're a mother. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you look and the whole, you look fine thing. Yes. Which is awesome. Um. And so there were actually two doctors out of the 15 plus, there were women, of course, who said, I believe you're sick. One was an ear, nose and throat doctor and the other was an endocrinologist. And they're like, I believe you're sick. I just don't have the tools to figure out what it is. At least someone was able to say it. Right. And I was like, well, that's all I want to hear. Like, all I want to hear from someone is I believe you're sick. I don't know why. You know, you don't have to have all the answers. Just don't pa- pass me off and tell me I'm crazy. Because all yeah. of them were trying to give me anxiety meds and send me to a psychiatrist. Oh, my God. Which I did because I was so desperate. I'm like, yeah, the anxiety medicine, unfortunately, did nothing for me. Going to therapy was a helpful thing. I had right. to, like, find three. And I didn't go to a psychiatrist in the end because she just kept trying to put me on psych meds. But, right. um, but yeah, so I kind of was like, okay, I'm not going to get an answer. I do have to share my experience with an infectious disease doctor, if it's okay. Yeah. Um, Just for anyone who is going through this experience right now, I just to not put up with this sort of treatment. So uh, the last doctor I saw was an infectious disease doctor. And I remember going in there and it's like in the bowels of the hospital, like it's down in the basement and they keep (laughs) you, you know, they keep all the infectious people like far away, (laughs) far away from everyone else. It's like the dregs of the, it's the basement. So I'm in there and I'm like looking around and it's like this just super dreary, awful, you know, office. It's like a holding pen and they call me in and, oh, they were like, you're so lucky you're getting like this fellow, um, you know, whatever. He's really great. Um, so he comes in and he looks me over and all that. And it's not really sort of half listening. And then he's like, you know, the only you don't seem sick. The only thing I can think of that sort of moves around like that in the body is HIV. So you, Oh, thank you for freaking me out about that one. (laughs) So he's like, so I'm a, that's, I'm, we're going to test you, but like, that's the one thing that sounds like it could be. And I'm just like HIV, like, how do I have HIV? And then I'm like racking my brain. I'm like, I'm like, then I'm like my husband, I'm like, I'm calling him immediately when I get out of here, I'm like freaking out, you know? And so then he goes, I'm like, and I start crying. And so he goes to get his attending and they, and that's a woman, but they come in and they literally start um, interrogating me. So maybe there's a night you don't remember in college. You've oh never, my used, God. you've never used intravenous drugs or slept around. Or oh, so, so, oh, so also like, we're now judging your character. Yeah. So I was like, wow. 
I just left there. Literally, I was shaking in the car. I called my husband. I'm like, do you need to tell me something? What have you been doing? Like, you know, I was like totally freaked out. That's unacceptable, isn't it? It's abuse. It's straight up abuse. And I know that I'm not the only person. Even if you had had HIV. Right. Right. No matter what. You know, you don't, even if that was the news they were going to deliver to me that day, you don't do it in that manner. No. You know what I mean? And so I just want people to remember not to put up with that. sort. But also to understand that the symptoms of Lyme disease, I mean, it's known as the great imitator and it sounds like one of the diagnoses that it could very easily overlap with is HIV because this is something that is attacking your immune system and manifests in numerous ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's a multi-systemic thing that kind of one day it's you have maybe blepharitis in your eye, some infl- you know, in- infection in your eye, and then the next day you have an infected toe. Like that's just the way yeah. Lyme works, and it's the way HIV works, and that's the reason. Like when I thought I had candida overgrowth, my father-in-law, who's a gastroenterologist, was like, "No, only cancer patients and people with HIV get <sighs> candida overgrowth." And I was like, "Well, I'm pretty sure I have it." <laughs> like, yeah. You know, um, so yeah, there was just all these misconceptions about Lyme and that, yeah, like you said, the great imitator. So sorry about the roundabout way to get back. Oh no, gosh, don't diagnosis. apologize. It's horrible that you had to go through <laughs> that. And I think it's important that we hear these stories because that's the whole point, right? You yeah. know, that like, we need to understand that like this happened a decade ago. Yeah. Well, and what's happening now in many cases is just as bad. Yeah. So like, unless we're talking about what's actually happening, we're never going to change it. Right. We need to be vocal about it because I, and through my work with my clients, I'm not, I'm sadly not the only one who's been treated that way. You know, it's, you know, it's a common story. Um, so, so I had, I got all that behind me. I went home and I'm like, listen, nobody's obviously going to help me. I need to help myself. So I did kind of self-diagnose myself with candida overgrowth and went on a candida diet, anti-candida diet which stopped the bleeding, at least it's like, mm. finally, I could digest my food, get out of bed, all that. And in the meantime, I found a doctor who, of course, was off the grid and didn't take insurance. <laughs> um, so mm. all that was out of pocket. But um, and she's the one who was like, can you take this questionnaire, the Lyme questionnaire? And I was like, sure, but there, I don't think I have Lyme disease, you know, so I took the questionnaire yeah. and as I'm going through it, I'm like, why am I checking all these boxes? <laughs> like yeah. this is weird. Um, and then sure enough, she had the blood work done and uh, came back, you know, positive for Lyme. All of my co-infection tests came back negative, but that was kind of early days of co-infection tests. And uh, she felt based on my symptoms that I probably had Bartonella mm-hmm. and Ehrlichiosis, Um and, and then let yeah. me ask as well, was this the Western blot or this was like an IgenX or, or this like was a, like an IgenX yeah. version? Yeah. So there's another thing is that like the diagnostic standards, well, they're not standardized here. I mean, yeah. we go by the CDC's guidelines on Lyme and that that's only with Lyme when you catch it, right? Like right. there's no indication about chronic Lyme there, but also, you know, that the Western blot te- test, as you've already mentioned, the testing diagnostics are not up to par. No. Yeah. And sadly, we're seeing that now with COVID too. And I think with COVID long haulers, we're going to see that, you know, people, Mm. we don't know why you're still sick all these years later, but you know, that these things are real and we may not have tests to prove it, but we don't need a damn test to prove it. We just need to believe that people don't feel well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Come on. Yeah. 
And we also need to standardize what these treatments are going to look like then too, Mm -hmm. whether it's going to have to be a detox pathway for one person or a change in lifestyle for another, you know, that everyone's going to be individual. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be the same for just like people's symptoms aren't the same. You can have the same exact thing and your symptoms are going to be totally different. We need to take a person by person approach, just like you're saying. Yeah. Um, So you got your Lyme diagnosis and what was the emotional reaction? Huh? So yeah, I'll never forget it. It was, um, my husband was traveling in London for work. So I was home alone with my two-year-old and I was napping when he napped because I, my energy was just, I had zero. Um, and here I am by myself, uh, the phone rings and I pick it up and she's like, you know, it's doctor, your doctor. Um, and you tested positive for Lyme and I just, my heart sank into my stomach and I was like, it was totally that mixed bag. Like I said, of see, I am sick. Like I finally have an answer and, oh my God, what does this mean? Hmm. Um, and, and again, what has, it, what has it meant? I mean, what does that yeah. look like since that day? Well, it was scary as hell at first, because the first thing I would tell people is to, when you get a diagnosis is to not go online and start Googling things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Number one, um, because that further traumatized my brain. And I feel like set me back a lot to be like as soon as I started to read a message board and people were sharing their like worst case, again, I could feel that fight or flight sickness in my stomach. And I was just like, can't look at this. Um, so it's meant, you know, it's been a rough ride. So I got the diagnosis and then I had my first appointment with, with that doctor in person. And when I went, um, since it's sort of like what she does, she kind of like gave me the rundown in a very, like, not a very feeling way. So it was like, yeah, so you have Lyme and it looks like you have an old infection, which probably explains your childhood stuff. And now you have a new infection. So you're probably reinfected. That's what that, that scab was on the back of your neck, probably in the fall. Like I had raked leaves and were jumping in them. Big mistake. I had no idea. Um, and had this like scab at the back of my head that would just bleed and bleed. And I never had my husband look at it. And I just thought it was like a pimple or something. But so it all started to add up. And I, and then I got a speckle rash on the back of my head too. Oh, um, wow. So I was like, okay. And I'm like making sense of it. And she's like, so you're going to, um, oh, and by the way, you probably gave it to your son since you had it before. And I was just like. So the anxiety was through the roof. Oh, and I was there by myself. And I was like, tell me anything about myself, but tell me anything about my child. I don't even remember driving home that day. I had to keep pulling over because I couldn't breathe and I couldn't see because I was crying so hard. And I'm like calling everybody to tell them and just getting a new diagnosis is, uh, is literally like the floor just drops out from you. Yeah. It's like, and then to think that that, that could be my son's fate too. I was just Mm -hmm. like, no, this can't, this is the worst possible news that like you could get, you know, yeah. that you have an illness and possibly your child has it too. In, in many ways, it's almost like that the HIV scare earlier, like mm-hmm. that might've been more manageable. Yeah. Well, cause know? there's meds for that. I mean, that's, yeah. I, I'm not trying to be, but yeah, I mean, that's what he told me that day when I left the office, he's like, you know, my HIV pa- patients live really full lives. Yeah. And I'm like, great. And I'm like, great. But you know, that's not the case for Lyme. Unfortunately, yeah. it's just not, we're yeah. not there. We're not there with that, unfortunately. Um, so yeah. And then she's like, you'll start these three antibiotics on Monday or whatever. So I got the, the scripts and picked them up and I'm like, okay, great. This is, this is the beginning to me feeling better. 
And within five days, I was like head to toe hives and my mouth was swelling shut and um, my ears were swollen. And I call her and she's like, you need to get off of those medications immediately and start taking Benadryl. And if the reaction doesn't go down within 48 hours, you have to come in and get steroids, which we don't want to do because that makes Lyme worse. That makes Lyme. And so I'm just like, the, the, again, the stress feeding, if this mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, keep checking the welts, keep checking everything, because if it doesn't go away in 48 hours, I have to do a thing that's going to make things worse. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I was like, so I remember asking her during that phone call, well, what do I do if <clears throat> I can't tolerate the antibiotics? Because I've always been sensitive to pharmaceuticals. Like I've never been able to do like the pharmaceutical route for anything. And she's like, well, we're in real trouble then. And I was like, great. Thank you. Yeah. So I have no, and this is an LLMD. Yeah. Her path is very, her path is very one kind Mm. of It's the antibiotics. Basically she does some supportive stuff. Well, then I wouldn't necessarily call her an LLMD, but I suppose back in at that time, a decade ago, she was. Yeah. So I was like, oh my God. So the worst thing was thinking that there was no, no way. Cause at that point I didn't know about any alternatives. You know, I thought that was it. I still kept on the diet and all that, but just at probably my lowest hope point, I got a phone call from my cousin in Vermont and, um, her husband is like in the native American, like drumming circle scene. And he's like, there's, uh, someone who comes to the circles who, um, He's an herbalist and he has, he and his wife have Lyme. So he knows how to treat Lyme with herbs and he Mm. lives 15 minutes away from you. Perfect. Yeah. And at that point you're like, I'll give anything a try too. Yeah. I mean, if they had told me to drink Windex and stand on my head in the corner, like I would have done it at that point, you know? Um, so, so yeah, so I made an appointment with him and I went and we talked and he got it at such a level because he and his wife had lived it. Their dog even had Lyme disease, chronic wow. Lyme. Um, and so I started the treatment with him. It's a Buner based protocol of herbs. Um, I did. What does that mean? Buner based? Oh yeah. So, um, Stephen Harad Buner is uh, an herbalist who came up with a specific Lyme herbal Lyme protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like a road of different, you know, and you even some of it, you, you do one treatment during two phases of the moon and another treatment during the other two phases. So it's very tied yeah. into like how the Lyme behaves based on what the cycle of the moon is. Wow. Um, because, Almost you know, spiritual because, in the approach. Yeah. And also just, you know, just that nature, I don't know if you've noticed this with yourself, but like full moon, sometimes my symptoms are worse. And again, I see that in two ways that parasites and animals and things are more active during, um, a full moon. Yeah. And also the gravitational pull on your body, it's a bigger stress during the full moon. So there's a lot of wisdom in that, um, Mm. that sort of thinking. Um, so I did that for two and a half years, continued on my diet, got really heavy into, I have a absolutely like out of this world acupuncturist who I trust beyond, just beyond, you know, he's gotten me through so many times where I'm like, I think I need to go to the hospital. And he's like, no, your body's got it. Like just giving me that confidence Mm -hmm. and explain to me what's going on in my body. Like, oh, your gallbladder is burdened or, you know, we all deserve to have this information. Like this is what's happening with you. Okay. Then I'm going to eat this way, or I'm going to do these, 
pressure points or whatever. We all deserve to have this information. And holistic, that kind of holistic approach too. There's no harm usually in working with pressure points or craniosacral work or any of that kind of thing. So why it's not incorporated more into our traditional Western medical approaches is sort of like, why not? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I also have to make a stand for why is it also screened out of our Google searches and things, these things where it's like, oh, what can I do for a home remedy for ear pain or whatever? And it's like, I now have to dig, like I have my resources, thankfully, Mm. but back in 2011, if I put something like that in, you know, Dr. Axe would come up or Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Aviva Ram. And now it's like those, from what I understand, Google has really tried to make it so people can't have dangerous help. It's a fascinating one, isn't it? Because there has been such a spread of misinformation in in the last several years in particular, and that's been fueled by social media and, you know, a lack of responsibility there. Yeah. The backlash, the the response to it has been, let's just silence everyone in the wellness world Mm -hmm. rather than let's silence the people who are actually um, touting not non-evidence-based. Right. Right. Like if we focused on the people who are touting information that is indeed evidence-based, like your Aviva Rams and your Dr. Axes, you know, like there's merit in a lot of what they offer. Yeah. So that's really frustrating. I agree. Yeah. Because I think that there's so much damaging information on the internet, like how to build a bomb and things like that. And we can have access to that. But like when it comes to our own body, if I look at someone who says, for example, when you have uh, coronavirus, you should drink Lysol or something like, come on, I'm, I know in my intuition for myself that that's not a good idea, (laughs) but I also think like it's my body. And if someone says no, but you know what elderberry and I decide, mm. you know what? I want to try elderberry. Isn't that my prerogative? Like, it's well, there's a huge body. difference between elderberry and Lysol. Yeah, as well. But what I'm saying is, like, it's weird to me the things that like media is allowed to say to us, mm. and then these, but these other things are more dangerous. Like, yeah. I don't know. It's weird. It's a um, weird double standard. Yeah. Mm. And so, I think part of that is because it actually some of this holistic information threatens big money in big. That's pharma. what I think. That's what I think it comes down to and why it pisses me off so bad is because it's like, who doesn't want us to help ourselves? Like, why is that a thing? It used to be common in tribes, in, Mm -hmm. in, you know, villages, like where my family came from in Sicily, like families, the mother of the family had healing information. It was like, you knew you picked the rosemary at a certain time and that that was used for certain things. And like we should all have that info. We are all have the right to that information to help ourselves and our families. Mm-hmm. Then you elevate it to a doctor when it gets beyond like the common cold or what you can handle. But yeah. like we deserve to have some power over that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that autonomy is is so important, especially to patients like us who have had our autonomy stripped of us when our bodies completely rebel, right? We have no control over our bodies. So our autonomy goes out the window. And then we have people telling us it's all in our heads. Like Mm -hmm. we all sort of have to scrape and scratch to get back to a place where we are able to embrace bodily autonomy and be able to our own two feet, let alone be able to continue to practice what is working for us or not. Yeah. So I'm yeah. wondering, I mean, you've gone through this whole journey and it sounds like you, you've you reached points of homeostasis. Obviously you're in mm-hmm. a flare right now, which you shared with me before we started this interview. Yeah. 
And, but it sounds like, I mean, one of the things we talked about before we started recording as well was, you know, the idea that like, at least when we flare now, nothing's as bad as when you're sick Mm -hmm. at first and have no answers. At least when you flare now, you know, rationally speaking, here are the methods I can turn to that help me heal, or I know that it will end, you know, that there is an end point in sight, things like that. Um, but I'm wondering, cause you know, you mentioned, especially when you were getting these diagnoses before Lyme, uh, you know, calling people and getting support. Mm-hmm. Did you have a support network when you were going through all of this? Like, did you have any people who stepped up as advocates for you? Or is that something that you had to learn for yourself? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, it's unfortunately, it was something I had to learn for myself. Um, I grew up as someone who really didn't, I was not an outspoken person. I did not have a voice. And I was just sort of like, you know, you, you, you know, just, that's just how it was. Like, that was sort of what was role modeled for me. And um, you just don't make waves or draw attention to yourself. And uh, so then to be in a position where my life sort of depended on me being a squeaky wheel, which was so uncomfortable for me. Like, don't be a difficult person. Don't push back. Like that's rude. <laughs> um, so, but I realized pretty quickly, like nobody's going to do it for me. Actually quite mm-hmm. the opposite. People are trying to quiet my screams for like, I need help. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- thankfully the th- one of the real kind of lighthouses for me was I did along the way, get some numbers of people who had been through a Lyme journey and were doing better. And so, you know, those were everything to me. Cause it was like people who were like, oh yeah, I had, you know, like we would, it's almost that unspoken thing of like, yep. I know what it's like to like say goodbye to your child when you put them to bed at night, because you don't know if you're going to see them the next day. Um, and now, but now I just want to tell you, like this one woman was like, you will get through it. Like you will, mm-hmm. she just kept saying to me, like, you will get better. I really believe you will get better. In many ways, that's, I mean, this is addressing what you mentioned earlier about there having to be mindset shifts, right? Mm -hmm. That like, that is really directly related to a decision that you make to survive. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that there are people who get beaten down so many times that they no longer prioritize that decision. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like that was a decision that you, you made and, and had to make. Yeah. It's weird. To get where you are. It's weird as, as kind of quiet as I'm so not quiet. People would laugh to hear me say about that. I was, <laughs> well, it's funny because I know you now, like I get it, yeah. but I'm also like Sharon yeah. sitting quietly, just taking it. Yeah. Like, no, that what? is so not going to happen ever again. And especially no. then when I became a mom, I became a real like pit bull. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird to think back on, but I have seen there was something inside of me as quiet or whatever as I was. I think it's from my dad's side, really, because my mom is more of the quiet person. And my dad is an Italian and he kind of just like doesn't take crap from people. And so that side of me really had a chance to come out. And and he's also extremely like stubborn. So like when he puts his mind to something, he's going to do it. And so I'm so grateful for that because as much as people told me this, or you should do it this way. Again, that's the other thing about having analysis. Everyone has their advice, right? Well, if you don't do Mm -hmm. this, so many people came to me and was like, Sharon, if you don't do the antibiotics, you're going to die. And I'm like, you don't understand. I can't do the antibiotics. So you telling me that I have to is really cruel because like I can't. And 
well, you're going to end up at least in a wheelchair or something, you know, and I'm just like, and I would, unfortunately, a part of your brain holds on to that. That's why I'm telling sure. people out there, be careful what you say to other people, because that'll stick because our brain is wired to save us, to protect us. So it's going to hold on to the scary information to prevent it from happening. So like, just be very careful with your words. Um, with people, you know, when you are on the other side and you're now helping someone in a new position of diagnosis or early in their journey, because it makes such a difference. Um, but yeah, I'd seen people along the way, um, in my, in my own family who didn't have that like sort of sureness and stubbornness that like, I'm going to figure this out no matter what, and I'm going to get help no matter what. And they kind of surrendered to a life of a lot of illness and a lot of difficulty. And I just decided, I just feel blessed, I guess, that I have that determination because I know it's not possible for everybody. And so I look at people, whether I'm health coaching them or it's in a personal respect who can't do it. And I just, my heart hurts for those people because I know they would, if they could, wouldn't we all believe in our wellness and wouldn't we all never give up if, if we could. And there's so many factors that impact that. And it's not just financial. Sometimes financial has nothing to do with it. Although unfortunately it has a lot to do with it for many. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is just really caring enough about yourself and having a purpose and a sense of meaning in life. Um, Do you think that your illness forced you to face that purpose? Yeah. Like maybe, yeah. Like it was something that like prior to that you'd sort of meandered with, and then you got sick and you were like, if I don't recognize my self-worth now, we're not going to survive this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it also gave me a sense of purpose because I had gone from, you know, I wasn't in love with my jobs. I liked what I did because it was people oriented. I was a recruiter. Um, but it wasn't my passion. And then it became, my identity became being a mom. And I was so obsessed and passionate about that. But that I knew wasn't, that's not going to last forever. I mean, he's 12 now. So he's starting to sort of move away from needing that so much. And I'm like, my being a health coach gives me purpose every day. And I had to recognize my own self-worth. And now I can see other people's self-worth so much better. You know, everything I've done on this journey to this point has made me not just a better person in my personal life, but so much better at what I do. Mm. Absolutely. And which we're going to get into, but before we do, can you also talk us through what like a typical day is like for you? Like, how are you now balancing the demands of work and life as you're managing things like the flare you're in right now, yeah. potential symptoms that might crop up for you? Like you, have you had to redesign your life around your illness? Yeah. I mean, the, the, I take a big sigh there because the relief is I always tried to be someone I wasn't before the illness. I have never been a morning person. I have never had a ton of energy. My energy has always come in fits and starts. So like I got to take advantage of my energy and then I need to give myself downtime. But I always just tried to plow through and pretend that that wasn't who I was because it was Mm. shameful for me. I was like, how am I related to all these super hard workers in life? And people who live their life in a certain way. And I'm, I couldn't be more different. And so I tried to not be that way. And I kept, right. (laughs) And then I kept paying for it. It's like you play push too hard and then cut and then recover. Yeah. Suffer, recover. Then you need more time to get back on your feet to be able to do it again. I still get in those cycles where I'm like, I'll just, 
kind of look over your shoulder. Like, I'll just do one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> I can then, do it. Right. Yeah. I can handle my body can do this. Yeah. I'll take on one more thing. And it's always one more thing. And then you're like, yep, sorry. I can't do anything for two weeks now. You know yep. what I mean? Uh, I think that's also partially because there's something about overachievers and like recovering type A perfectionist, you know, personalities that seems to be us who are getting hit with chronic illnesses Mm -hmm. um, and whether we're the canaries in the coal mine or um, there is actually, you know, there needs to be a rebalancing of culture. Yeah you know, that, that becomes the question, right? And yeah, it sounds like you've responded to culture with your changing. Yeah. And I mean, I'm fortunate again, I know that's not realistic for everybody. I mean, I have, you know, I'm married and my husband works and, um, I, because I have a health coaching, my own health coaching thing, I can make my own hours and, and no, I don't see anyone before 10 AM, you know, or whatever that happens to be that works for me. Um, is, is a luxury that I know most people don't have, but, um, I've been, so I feel really lucky for that because yeah, I mean, otherwise the way I was living my life before was just, it was keeping me sicker. I have to admit like Mm. me trying to fit, you know, into this society as a highly sensitive person. I think what you said about type a is right. You take the dangerous combination of say a perfectionist who's highly sensitive. It's just, you're just, uh, like kind of, uh, ticking time bomb. Yeah. It's really not a good combo. Um, and I wouldn't say that in every area of my life, I was a perfectionist. I wasn't, I was sort of procrastinator or perfectionist. I'm sort of an all or nothing person. Hmm. So again, it's that cycle of extremes. And a lot of my healing journey has been about finding the middle place for everything, finding balance where I'm not going to, like I said, push myself to exhaustion and then not do everything, not do anything. Um, you know, so there's yeah. a lot of shame in that, like lack of being able to manage yourself, like maybe executive yeah. functioning type challenges. Well, and I wonder about to go back to what you were talking about earlier with regard to trauma, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that like any of the shame that you're feeling is more related to other people's judgment of you or, you know, what you've been socialized to believe is mm-hmm normal executive function, you know, right. quote unquote normal. Um, and this expectation that like everyone should be on the same line rather than exactly. this idea of there being variation in mm-hmm. personalities and, and abilities and things like that. Um, you know, we think of the two, the dichotomies of able-bodied and disabled, but there's never any space for anything in between, exactly. um, which is exactly what we explore on the show, you know, but like yep. that, that you're, you're sort of, you've had to challenge yourself to think outside of that, but now it's the work of the rest of our society to yeah. do that, isn't it? And I, I'm wondering, cause you also, I, you've told us about a number of instances when you had to justify the fact that you were ill to people who oh. didn't believe you. Yeah. Do you think like within the healthcare system, especially as it regards the way that you present, you're walking into a hospital, you're, you know, a white, um, you know, female presenting, um, woman walking into these, these operating rooms or, or, you know, um, treatment rooms. Mm -hmm. And do you think your circumstances might've been different if you'd been male or if you'd been a person of color, like, do you Mm -hmm. think, or trans or, you know, any other kind of presenting identity might have slowed or quickened your diagnosis? That's an interesting question that I think about a lot. I think 
for sure someone who was um, a person of color or transgender would have probably been even worse treated in like, say that infectious disease appointment. I mean, that was atrocious enough for me. So I can only imagine how probably that white male doctor would have have treated treated other. Yeah. So I'm sure I had it better than some. I don't know if maybe being a male would have helped me some uh, in that, in that specific situation, especially Um, I hear of plenty of males who in the Lyme community who are treated pretty similarly to how I've been treated. Mm. Um, But then again, with a lot of these illnesses, way more women have them. So that's the tricky thing. Um, What do you think that's about? Is that because more women are coming forward? Or is it because more women are more susceptible? Because we don't know. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I think women tend to talk more about how they feel, whereas men tend to push through it more or just, you know, try to man up, quote unquote. Mm. Um, But I do think that women, again, I think there's definitely a hormonal role in there. Our hormones really do, they fluctuate all month. I mean, everyone's hormones fluctuate all the time, but the way in which that our hormones affect our immune system and affect kind of the, the harmony of our ability to kind of, um, fit within the rubric of society. Yeah, that too. (laughs) I think that's part of it. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Mm. I think, um, and I know I don't like to say, I was kind of hesitating to say, but I feel like we are more feeling people. And I know, again, Mm. that's sort of a stereotype, but I feel like we take on more of the stress and the anxiety, you know, the, the, the suffering of the world, I would say. Um, I think that's like the mothering, nurturing side. And I think, you know, again, as, as that doesn't sound so good for like, I guess a feminist perspective, but I think it's true. Mm. I think that we feel a lot more. And I do, I mean, again, that's why I've gotten into mind body medicine. I think our emotions, our past traumas, I think all of that stuff lays the groundwork for how healthy we're going to be later in life. Yeah. Absolutely. So for these people who are experiencing inequity in the healthcare system, including you, yeah, would you say that, you know, racial inequity, gender inequity, um, sexual identity inequity in the healthcare mm-hmm. system is its own public health crisis aside oh. from the Lyme crisis? Are you kidding? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's an epidemic. I mean, it's, it's frustrating, isn't it? Because it's that you're already dealing with an epidemic when it comes to something like chronic Lyme, but then you've got the extra epidemic layer of your identity, right? Which, which anyone who's entering the healthcare system with its biases is going to encounter, but it makes it even harder to get that diagnosis and to get that treatment. Doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like, again, I I've tried really hard to see the silver lining of the epidemic or I mean, of the pandemic, sorry. Um, I really tried to see the silver lining of the pandemic and I am remaining hopeful that one of them will be that we will realize exactly how bad we've been treating patients Mm -hmm. of, of all walks of life, but especially the underserved populations and minorities and those most um, marginalized. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is the, you look at the numbers of people who are dying. It it can't get more obvious. I mean, how you can't ignore that. Um, you know, for me, the real awareness started to come when I discovered the number, the shocking percentages of women of color who die after childbirth. Yeah. 
um, I was like, I was going to mention that because that's where it's also very obvious. Yeah. I mean, how is, when I found that out, I was so mad. I wanted to like scream, like I was so mad and upset. And I'm like, how can this really be? I think so many of us, it's, we're just so clueless. Like I literally, like we live in our own little white world or whatever. And like, you don't even give some of these things a thought until like, until for me going into the health coaching world where I was now aware of sort of these statistics and the population at large, instead of on a smaller scale. And I'm just appalled. Like that should not be, it took yeah. it for, for news stories like that to come out. It took someone like Venus Williams yeah. to almost die after childbirth to bring this to light. Cause literally like the world's greatest athlete. We had right. to watch her almost die. Like nice almost guy. die after yeah. having a, after having a natural experience of having a child, which mm. They should know you keep an eye on a mom in a certain way, especially women of color tend to have, I think, more, from what I understand, maybe more of these postpartum issues. Well, that's also because they're not being taken seriously by right. the doctors. Yeah. 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 So. Well, and I'm wondering then how you got into health coaching, because you're you're now an active health coach, functional medicine forward. Um, how did you arrive at that place? Did that come out of your experience directly? You know, that, that you met functional medicine and it was part of your inner workings to find homeostasis. And now you want to offer that to other people. What does that look like for you in practice? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. So, um, yeah, along the way on my own healing journey, because I had such a sort of, everybody was aware because I became such a mouthpiece about not being taken seriously and how I had to go sort of an alternative. I found, like you said, an, an, a Lyme literate doctor, but then even from that had to deviate, you know what I mean? I really had to like forge my own path, which was so out of character for me at that point that then I just wanted to tell everybody, like anybody who came within my feet, my range, I was like, do you know about Lyme disease? And I would like, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's weird because part of my journey was completely flipping my house. So I ripped out like anything toxic, like carpeting. I just like went crazy to try to make my home environment as conducive to me healing as possible. Yeah. And so some of that was, um, you know, having contractors come in. I had a plumber come in. I had literally all these different people come in and every single person, I had someone come clean the vents, like all Which these everyone things. should do regularly. And Please. It's not hard I had to do. no idea. I had yeah. no idea. It's um, not hard to do. It's really not like once every year or two, have these people come blow out your vents and do it when you check your fire alarm batteries. Yeah. I mean, you have to do it. Um, And so I had all these different people coming into my house and every single person, I'm like, just so you know, I'm doing this because I have Lyme disease and gave them my like little spiel. Every single practitioner or every single worker who came into my house was like, oh, my mom has Lyme disease. Oh, my sister has Lyme disease. Well, my wife has, and this is back near Boston. So you're, you're still on the East coast, like on the Eastern seaboard. Yeah. Yeah. Right outside of Boston. So yeah, it's a real problem here, obviously the Lyme and the ticks and, um, but then see, cause I was new to living here. I didn't realize what a problem it was. And so to talk to literally every single person who had come to do work in my house, that they had some direct connection to Lyme disease. I was like, okay, this is a much bigger problem than I realized. Um, And people just started calling me. They're like, well, can I have your phone number? Can I have this? And so people were calling me and I was happy to give them hope and tell them about my story. But like you 
touched on so importantly, like what you need to do is not necessarily what I did. Mm. And I'm not qualified in any way, shape or form to help you do that. I can share my story and that's about it. And so then I realized you weren't weren't qualified then. (laughs) Right. That's when I realized, wow, I'm getting a phone call sometimes every day or at least a couple times a week. Like this, there's a big need. Um, and honestly, like in 2011, the summer of 2011, when I was bedridden and I could hear my son and husband playing outside in the yard and I couldn't go play with them. I said to God, I just said a prayer. I'm like, if you get me through this, I promise I will help people. I promise, Mm -hmm. promise that I will find a way. This is another common narrative in this community. And I love it. Like, you know, we find ways to get well and we want to pay it forward, which is so beautiful. It's beauty for ashes. It's finding a meaning and it's, it's not letting your suffering be for nothing. You know, I think that's what we all want to do is know that we didn't go through that for no reason, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, so people started contacting me and I was like, I'm not qualified, but you know what? I'm going to start. I'm always been a why person, a why, a what I want to know all the answers. And that's why I originally was going to become a journalist. So I already had Mm -hmm. sort of the investigative person, That's what got me through my situation. And so I was like, now I just need to find how to channel that. And so I'd looked at like a bunch of different programs and I'd gotten an email about the functional medicine. I also, I love this because Mm -hmm. I did not know that one could train as a health coach in functional medicine until I met you. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like it's because I met you that I've gone and started training myself. Like it's- Cause you That's told awesome. me, oh, you know, functional medicine, health coaching kind of mean, I was like, what? And I looked it up and I was like, this exists <laughs> like, oh, look, it's the answer to all the things that, right. you know, all the conversations, all the ways in which we want to be able to serve this community. And it's right there in front of us. And I had no idea until yeah. you and I met and Aww. it's fascinating. I love that. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing work. Yeah. Everybody needs to know about it, whether you want to do it yourself or you just need to find somebody to help, you know, on the health coaching side to help you, because I feel like we all need a health coach at this point. I had a health coach and it made such a, and she had had Lyme. So it was like a buddy that I could check in with once a week who not just understood my situation. Cause you know, sometimes getting advice from people who have no, idea, who've never been mm. in your shoes, you're kind of like, yeah, that's cute. And everything to say <laughs> that I should, you know, yeah. um, it's way it's, it's got way more street cred when it comes from someone who's actually been there. So would you say that the majority of your clients are also people living with chronic Lyme or do you treat people across the board? No, I help people who have, I mean, I have a whole range of things, but I get a lot of Lyme people and the majority of people I work with are highly sensitive or consider themselves Mm -hmm. highly sensitive. That's sort of my thing. Like, because I know it's not just about getting a diagnosis and then going the treatment route. When you're highly sensitive, you're dodging a ton of bullets. You could take a supplement that then you're recovering from a reaction to that for a week. So it's like, you can't just, and and so many alternative practitioners still don't get that. They're like, here, you're going to leave my office with this cute little canvas bag of 25 supplements, go home. (laughs) Which costs you $500. (laughs) Yeah. That's bankrupted you. Yeah. (laughs) Go home. Here's the to-do list. And then they all end up in your graveyard. You've taken like two of each thing and you're like, I can't do anything with this. And I'm out $500. And now I'm back at square. I'm worse than back at square one because now I'm recovering from the reaction Mm -hmm. from all those things. So that's why I specialize really in helping those people in getting back in tune with their intuition and being able to go to a doctor and say, 
we plan for their appointments ahead of time. Okay. What are you going in there really wanting to get from this appointment? And like, um, what are your hard no's? Like, you know, cause you can get talked into stuff really easily. Like you can go in being like, I'm not buying, I'm not buying five supplements again. I'm just not doing it. And then you walk out and you're like, why did I just do that? <laughs> it's like buyer's remorse. Um, yeah. you know, and you um, can't return supplements. Either. Yeah. I mean, once you crack the seal, forget it. <laughs> that's it. And some of them like each are like $50 or a hundred dollars. Yeah. You're like, it's no joke. You know, it happened. Mm-hmm. I, I know so many people who go down that road and, um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot of Lyme people, a lot of highly sensitive people, but anyone really, but I feel like, you know, once I decided the functional medicine route, because the reason I went that way is because that's what helped me heal personally, is I had kind of taken that naturally on my own. My intuition said, okay, you need to change your diet. You know, the five pillars of functional medicine were the things that I depended on, which were nutrition and sleep habits and movement, like not exercise. I could not exercise. That is for damn sure. I still am not at a point where I can full out exercise. And also if you walk every day, that's enough. Nobody needs to do HIIT workouts. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and since you said period, I do want to mention too, women have to be mindful of where you're at in your cycle about what kind level of exercise. I mean, we just got it all wrong for women. Like nobody's taking into account like that each week we're a little bit different because of our, yeah. you know, hormones and like, but we need to be really adjusting our foods, our movement, all that based on that information. And it takes just really what I, what I'm doing with people is bringing them back to them home to themselves, because you can't continue to go outside of yourself looking for information and looking for the answers to a certain degree. Yes, but not a hundred percent. You have to be tuned into the messages your body is giving you real time, you know, all the time to say, sometimes we need to test for certain things, but like a lot of the time your body will tell you, this is not working. This is not, you know. So it sounds like your role is really in not only encouraging what holistic methods might be complementary to someone's treatment, but also in, from a practical point of view, pre-planning for these doctor's appointments, Mm -hmm you know, figuring out which doctors we need to see, but then also mm-hmm. from an emotional point of view, being able to provide that very vital support. And, um, as you say, help people get back to themselves. Yeah. It's really about to, and that's why I really have focused in on mind body medicine is because again, I feel like along with it, it complements the fact that I feel like the, the real epidemic in our society is two things. It's trauma and it's loneliness you know, it's that lack of connection. And when you're traumatized, it doesn't matter if you're in a room of people, sometimes you can't connect. So it's like those two things, you know, and now we're at, I I would say a real, um, huge, you know, high point of loneliness. We just, it's just been exacerbated because of the the epidemic or I keep saying that the pandemic. Well, Um, the pandemic is an epidemic. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to have long COVID Yeah, and you know, like this is it, uh, that's correct actually. So it's not actually a mistake. It's actually your intuition being like, I actually see where this is going. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and again, that what it's done, we already had a huge mental health problem, um, in our society and, that's another, that's another reason that I got trained during this time. Cause I'm like, this is needed now more than ever. Um, these, these techniques that people can carry with them anywhere to navigate the stresses of life. Um, because you can't avoid them. They're going to keep happening, obviously. 
we couldn't have predicted this big one this last year. The presidential situation was a big stress on people. There's things that we're just not going to be able to control. And we need to be able to change the way that our bodies react to them. Yeah. Um, and it very much feeds illness. I mean, we look at the advanced or the ACEs studies that show that adverse childhood experiences a lot of times leads to chronic illness later in life. So we need to start giving people the tools to heal traumas and then to also real-time manage stress so that it doesn't tip the scales into expressing a disease state. Yeah. I love that, that terminology you just used expressing in a disease state, because that really is about understanding that like the disease is not you, Mm -mm. which I, I really think is important. So given your experience as a patient within the healthcare system, as someone who is coaching other patients in the healthcare system, are there ways that it's working? And we talked a little bit about some of the ways in which it's falling short, but I would love for you to like pinpoint for us, like what are the advantages and disadvantages of this current U.S. healthcare system? Okay. So the advantages are, I think we have a lot of really smart, well-meaning people who go into the medical field, whether that be to be a doctor, to be a nurse, um, But then what I think happens is we are in a system of teaching these people in a way that's broken. So I think they go in with the best of intentions. I think that we could have some of the most amazing doctors between the technology and the advances that we have access to. There's so many things that are like should be putting us at an advantage and should be putting us in a really good place. But then we're still teaching things teaching people to do things the same way. So um, the fact to me, when I read about sort of the, that the system is still sort of a hazing type situation where it's like, you have to stay up all night and you have to, and it's like, we don't even allow pilots to fly planes past a certain amount of hours yet. We're going to put someone up all night and have them cut into somebody you know, like I went in for an emergency appendectomy and the guy is like two o'clock in the morning. And the, the guy was like, this is like my third tonight. And I'm like thinking, have you slept at all? And you're going to like cut open my body. Like, yeah, not okay. No. So like, why do know, we have to make doctors inhuman? Right. Like it encourages them not to treat yes. people as humans. Right. It's the opposite. It's like, we haze them. Like they're going into the Marines yeah. And then there's just that disconnect. Then they're traumatized mm-hmm. from their experience of becoming a doctor. And they're also then raised up on this pedestal in their own mind. Like, well, I went through all that. You should have respect for me. And <laughs> I know better than you. And it's like, right. we've created the monster that is hurting us. Yeah. Um, You're the first person who's really pinpointed that <laughs> in all the time I've been doing this show. And I think you could not be more correct. I couldn't agree more. I just think... Like you, well, you really hit it on the head by saying, we've tried to make them not human. We've tried to make, and then, then how can they relate to humans? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the fact that now we're having to like rewind, like stop the tape and teach, there's like actually classes for empathy now that they're teaching doctors. And it's like, wait a minute. Like it's because we've beaten it. We've all got a certain level of it. I'm not saying everybody is empathic, but it's like, 
That's something that if it's nurtured, we all sort of have to a certain degree, but like you beat it out of them at a certain point and then, oh, we're going to reintroduce it now. <laughs> it's but like, do you think that's also, it's as much a part of our educational system. It's not oh, just yeah. medical school, right? No, like, no, it's everything. Right. Cause it's like, I mean, we often hear on this show that people are at their sickest when they're in high school or college. Mm-hmm. And it's when people are encouraged to cram and stay up mm-hmm. all night. It's when they are overworked and underappreciated, you know, like, um, and, and also thinking about our college system here in the U S where it's like, you can't just have a bachelor's degree. God forbid that's oh, all I know. you have. And who can afford to have that, you know? Um, so the catch 22 that so many students find themselves in, like, that's a dehumanizing process, let yeah. alone what happens in early childhood education. You know, I mean, I love when I see that there are schools that are like, making time for mindfulness or mm-hmm. like talking about relationships, but that doesn't happen in every environment. No. And people no. don't necessarily have that at home. So if they're not learning that at home, we have to set them up for success elsewhere. Right. Yeah. I don't understand. I really, I think it would be really nice if we could just sort of rip a lot of our educational system down to the pegs and start out because it's like just from my small experience and like what I, you know, know from the people in my life, it's like, I haven't used so much of what I learned, yeah. you know, I did not need to know beyond algebra. True. No, I didn't need to know it. <laughs> no. And I, you know, and to think that, that those are the things we focus on. And then I got out and I'm like, I don't know how to do my taxes. And I don't know, you know, there's all these like real life, life things yeah. and I'm like, I don't know how to do that. You I know? don't know how to budget. I don't know how to pay my bills. Like, yeah. Right. All of that. Let alone, let alone the, I don't know how to take care of my health part of it or how to stay healthy in the midst of it. Exactly. Thank you. If that could be, again, like you said, mindfulness in schools. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's another group of people that's up against impossible, you know, teachers, what we expect of them. They're given like, you know, to do this thing to, so the kids achieve a certain thing on a test instead of being like, standardize, you know, standardize this, standardize. It's like, no, no. Everywhere where we've sort of like gotten away from being human is where we've really, you know, that and any place where power and profit have been allowed to be king is where we have screwed ourselves so seriously in our food system and in our healthcare, anywhere where it's like someone is profiting from us suffering basically, or from us, things being a certain well, way. They, they have to sell us a solution. Yeah. Yeah. It's manipulative and it's not human. <laughs> no, it serves, it yeah. doesn't, you know, it doesn't serve most of us. It serves some of us. Yeah. I really love that you're calling that out. So I'm wondering, um, given all of your wealth of experience, right. As, as a patient, as a coach, If you're meeting a new client, for example, and um, maybe they suspect they've got something off, maybe they're living with chronic Lyme, maybe they're diagnosed or not, but they're living with some kind of chronic something. We know that Mm -hmm. they're on low. What are your top three tips for someone who is coming into this world and like joining the Spoonie crew? Mm. It's a good question. So top three tips. Wow. The, The biggest thing for me is... I just wish that I had been, I don't know. I, I would say, first of all, definitely don't Dr. Google, but, and, and don't, 
and and stay away from the negative like message boards and things and that's why I try to like shuttle everyone over to like Chronicon community mm-hmm. because um there really isn't anything out there like it there's no positive chronic illness community where we're not just yeah. like doom and gloom and we're we're showing I always tell people anchor yourself to what's possible so find somebody with your close as close as possible to your situation who's gotten to the other side and leave you know keep your sights on that person check in with them as much as you can even if it's just email to say I'm having a rough day and they can say been there you you can do it you've got to find something hopeful to anchor yourself to Mm. um so yeah so that's a two-part answer for one is that stay away from the kind of negative and doom and gloom stuff and anchor to something Hopeful. you know, po- hopeful and positive, which is also connected um, to like, just find a community. Yeah. Find yeah. support. You cannot go through it alone. I mean, I was mm-hmm. isolated both as a, a new time, mo- uh, like a new mom. And then like a year and a half later, double isolated with a chronic illness and isolation, I think was a major part of why. And I we know so- that there are <laughs> scientific studies that yes. show us that loneliness can be as bad for your health as smoking. Mm-hmm. So if we know that, yeah, probably address the isolation and the loneliness if you can. I know it's a harder yes. thing right now to do it, but there are so many virtual communities where mm-hmm. there are hugs being given out from a distance. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, I just have to say that I feel like so many of us are stuck in, that's supposed to be my family. And so a lot of people don't reach beyond, if their family in some way can't be that for them. They just think they're not worthy of it in some way. And you can create your own family and you can create your own communities and support. And it may not look like what you thought life should have been like, or what you had hoped it would be like, but it's still possible. So don't back yourself into a corner of thinking it's not possible because it's not my family or my close friends. But also understanding as we've talked about that, you know, chronic illness is going to force you to reckon with your own Mm self-worth. So maybe if you accepted that you had some worth and started investing in that, you know, and started there. Just even yeah. if you don't believe it, just start telling yourself that you're worthy every day. Maybe you'll start to believe it over time. For sure. Yeah. So that's a big one. So number one kind of like encompasses a lot. It's, it's that self-worth piece. It's the community. It's reaching out, definitely reaching out for help. Don't stay isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I would say go back to the basics, really. I mean, especially I tell this for my highly sensitive people, drink enough water, um, you know, get enough sleep. I know insomnia, if insomnia is a problem, be gentle with in that process itself, because the more that we sort of stress out about it and beat ourselves up about why can't I, why can't I, um, you know, do the best you can and just be, get back to the basics of what your body really needs to thrive. Like it sounds simple, but treat yourself like a baby, like nap and you know, drink water and be kind to yourself. You know, really, I try to tell people, think of yourself as either like someone you really love or a baby and treat yourself like that, you know, like treat yourself the way you treat your dog. Right. There you go. (laughs) If you're a good owner, (laughs) because if I think about the way, like I'm worried about my cat's health, checking his poop all the time Yes, and, you know, (laughs) like feeding him top of the line food and like sparing no expense over his medical stuff. Like I never gave myself that kind of care and nourishment. And when I started realizing that I needed to treat myself the way I treated my pet, it all started clicking. 
Yeah. You need to make a bumper sticker or a shirt or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my favorite is one of my favorite bumper stickers, totally off topic that I have ever seen for those who are also fellow animal lovers listening to the show. Um, I was in New Orleans like a little over a year ago and there was a bumper sticker on a car and it said, um, anything is, nothing is impossible or something like that. And it was like a possum. <gasps> oh, I love possum. Yeah. Impossible. I love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. You're never going to believe it, but I have a shirt that says that I have. Yeah. No, stop it. Yeah, Before okay. we get off, I'm going to get it to show you. <laughs> Cause nothing is impossible. No, so we seriously, you got to cut this out, but <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to, I think oh. it's kind of awesome. <laughs> We are obsessed with possums, opossums. Oh my god, I am too, and no one else is. Everyone thinks they're creepy, and no, I think I'm they're sending adorable. You, I'm sending you a picture. My son was one for Halloween one year. <gasps> oh my god, fabulous! Please send me the picture <laughs> because we're obsessed with them because they eat ticks, and also yes! we used to feed them in our. So they would come every winter because they can't get food, and we'd feed them and we'd watch them, and they like come up to our sliding door, and we were like obsessed with them. And so when I got, you know, when I was so sick and everything, my husband and son got me a shirt with a, an opossum on it. And it says, nothing is impossible. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's too good. I've literally been like, I told myself when I, I only have two tattoos, right? I've told myself, you know, anything I get a tattoo of, it can, it has to be something in nature. Like I want it to yeah. be something timeless and not like yeah. gimmicky or whatever. And yeah. I have thought maybe a possum is next. Yes, you have to. <laughs> you have to. I mean, nothing is impossible. It's true. (laughs) It's totally true. Um, Anyway, that was totally off topic. Yeah, no, it's fine. We were talking about self-worth. Yeah. And number two was. Number two was um, the getting back to the basics and treating yourself like a baby. And then number three, I I was going to go one. Yeah. So what I was going to say for number three is the mind body medicine piece. Mm -hmm. Um, I cannot stress that enough to people, the importance of building relaxation, stress, resilience into your every single day, because um, it really is the root. I mean, they say 70 to 90% of all doctor's visits are stress related and people Mm. are like, yeah, right. But if you really kind of undo the knots back to really, a lot of the times it is stress or trauma or one of those things that trips your nervous system. I'm just going to say this, the body cannot heal in a stress state. So if you're in chronic stress state, it's prioritizing your survival. It's not prioritizing repair and healing. So that is really, to me, the absolute foundation. And it's the hardest one to get to when all you can think about is my life is in danger or my life is somehow compromised. But it's the one when you have chronic illness, it's like sign up for that stress reduction class or sign up for something that's going to hold you accountable for working on it because if you don't get that under control you can take all the supplements you can eat all the organic food you can do everything perfectly but if you're running in a stressed state it's going to keep sabotaging that and undermining it so um I know it's a hard one and the other thing is there's so much resistance in our community at least at the beginning because we've been told that our illness is in our head and so to think, oh, so I'm supposed to do this thing that then maybe says that that's part of it, but it, it, mm. it is part of the problem, but it's not the whole problem. It's just contributing to the problem. This is not to say your illness isn't real. It's somehow your fault or made up in your head. No, this is to say that like you have an, ad- we all have an adaptive 
thing that's happened in our in our nervous system basically over time and we just have to correct it. It maybe served us for some point in our lives when we needed it. But and now we were literally running from lions. Kind of gone off the rails. And we just need to say, hey, you know what? Come. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of that, I mean, that's where I could go off on a whole nother tangent about epigenetics. But, you know, people who are descendants of Holocaust survivors or yep. people, I mean. We, Generational trauma is real. Yeah. That's one obvious one. But like. There's all, like you said, at some point we were all in, I mean, dying, you know, we were in some sort of danger at some point, all mm-hmm. of, I mean, for me, nobody thinks about it, but like in Sicily, like there was extreme poverty, poverty, there was natural disasters. And then there was like the Northern taking over of, I mean, there's just all this stuff that nobody even mm-hmm. thinks about in their own history that when you learn it, you're like, oh, I understand now why I don't trust government or I understand, (laughs) you know, it's like, oh, that makes sense. You know what I mean? It's very real. And if you unravel it or at least get to the source of it, it's just about going, oh, that exists. Right. And sometimes it's as simple as knowing and it can help shift your mindset. It's the shifting because, you know, the people that I, like I run mind body medicine groups and they're like, I can't stop my thoughts. And I'm like, nobody can, like, we're not supposed to, it's about noticing what you're doing and being like, Oh, but I could make a different choice. Like just stopping it and just redirecting. It's not about being a perfect, we're never going to be like not have scary thoughts or not have stressful things, but it's about redirecting. And then that sense of self-efficacy, Oh, I can do something for myself. And then there's not that helplessness that keeps us feeling unsafe throughout life. I love that. What about three things that you turn to, to light yourself up three things that despite your maybe lifestyle adjustments that you've had to make around your diagnosis Mm -hmm. that you turn to when you need a moment of joy, it can be like a comfort activity or, or a quote unquote guilty pleasure. Although the more I ask this question, the less I believe that a guilty pleasure even exists because pleasure is pleasure. Right. But you know, something that, that you indulge in to make yourself feel good. What are, where are the places you turn? So one is definitely, I'm super obsessed with my culture, which is, um, being Sicilian American. And Mm. so anything I can do that has like this whole pandemic, I've been just lost in, like, I was supposed to go to Sicily over the summer. So, oh man. Yeah. So I'm just like lost in like all Instagram, every like videos and pictures. And that just lights me up when I see Mm. Sicily or Italy places I love. Um, so, and I, then again, with the culture, like I've done a ton of, um, you know, ancestral research and I've done a ton of, um, like I've learned cultural dances and, you wow. know, strangely enough, the, the Terentella, which is a traditional Southern Italian dance was taught or was used to heal from the bite of a spider, a tiny, tiny spider, a tiny arachnid. And when I Stop. learned that. Well, of course, because the name, oh my goodness. So when I, the first time I was in class with the the folk teacher and she's telling the story of the significance and I started crying, I'm like, you don't understand. I'm here because I have, I have Lyme disease and I'm here to do this cultural dance that's supposed to heal you from the bite of a spider. Mm -hmm. And it was just so powerful. And then she explained that it wasn't really, after a while, it wasn't really believed that it was the bite of a spider. It was that women felt so oppressed that they were in this state. And I'm like, either way, either way it works, right? Trauma, which may have led to why they were so sick from the bite of a spider. 
I mean, to me, it made perfect sense. Mm. So, so anything cultural in my cultural, um, yeah, I love that. And then, um, definitely, um, my son makes me, you know, anything he always lights me up like the days this pandemic has been so hard and he's been homeschooling. It's like, he, he's my motivation to go outside every day. And he's, you know, he's been my motivation actually throughout the whole journey because I just wanted to get better. Even the days when you said self-worth is so important, but also something outside of yourself. Cause sometimes you can't find it. The motivation for yourself, you just can't, you're like, well, you know what? Sometimes we all have those days where like, whatever, the world will be better without me or what does it really matter or whatever. But like, I always had him to be like, well, I matter to him. Yeah. I, you know, I want to be better so that he can enjoy life with me and I can enjoy life with him. And, um, so yeah, he's really a source of joy for me, a source of purpose and meaning and his outlook on life is just amazing. And I, you know, since we are on the topic, I just want to add that a lot of us feel so much guilt as parents of, um, parents with chronic illness and, at one point on my journey, when I was feeling particularly guilty, um, really, really bad, my health coach said to me that she had coached somebody with MS. And um, at one point, that was, you know, a long time ago, her grown daughter, she, she was talking to her. And she said, you know, I know my mom felt really bad about being sick for most of my childhood. But she's like, it taught me so much empathy. And it taught me to like, really slow down in life. And like, I thought about it and I was like, my son always had my undivided attention. It was just that we were like laying around a lot, like reading or doing puzzles and we didn't go out and do a lot of things, but like, he always had, like, he, he was always happy and it was enough for him. And I didn't feel like it was enough. Like I should have him in all these groups and doing all these things. Social pressure. Yeah, exactly. And it was enough for him. And he is a really like the number one feedback we get from all his teachers is that like, when there's a new kid, he always jumps to volunteer to help them, you know, mm-hmm. find, find their way around and, and that he's like super sensitive and empathetic to people. I'm like, maybe that wouldn't have been the case if I hadn't gotten sick. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I just want like to think you would have raised a pretty empathic child either way, but still, I hope so. But you know, it definitely, it could be a sore point to touch back on of guilt. And I could look at all the things that I didn't do, but it could also be like, you know what, like we've had a lot of joyful, we've found joy despite the situation. Hmm. So, um, so definitely him. And then the third thing I would say that I always reach to definitely is all my mind body practices. I mean, when I'm really struggling, which I have been this last month, like you, you said, Hmm. I've been in a flare and sometimes my mind will start to go like, Oh God, how long is this going to last? And this is so, and then I'm like, Nope, I just need to do the things I know to do. And at some point I, the, the wave will be over. I will be on the other side of it. And so I just always reach to those things that like meditation and tapping. I love tapping mm. um, and just things that bring me back. It's hard because when you're sick, sometimes being in your body, you like, don't want to like do things that bring you back in your body. But it's amazing all these years of doing this work. I still find things where I'm like, you know what? I'm not accepting that I'm resisting it and I'm having to, to do that healing work of, well, can I just accept this is where I am and love myself and not see it as like, you're, you're going against me. You know, there's always work to be done there. And every time I do it, it's like, I always see it as like a video game. It's like, I've leveled up. Like (laughs) I got through this. And like we were talking about before, it's given me actually better tools to work with the people I'm working with too. 
Well, and I'm, it's also making me think about your relationship with your son. Like what better way to model self-worth and self-love than by walking the walk and talking the talk. So your son is seeing you react to yourself, find love and compassion for yourself. And he's learning that because he's watching you do it. Yeah. Yeah. And when I don't, he calls me out because he's like, mom, you would have told me to like be this way with myself, be kind and gentle. I'm like, you're right. Thank you for calling me out on that and keeping me honest. It's true. Yeah. That's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and your community in the work that you continue to do? Yeah, I think, I mean, what I, again, I'm just so passionate about getting the word out about mind-body medicine, because again, regardless of chronic illness, you know, physical or mental health, um, I really think it's the healing we all need right now, especially, I feel like if you think you had never been traumatized before, we're all collectively traumatized by this pandemic. So I would ask, so I was trained under um, Dr. Jim Gordon through the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. And I would just ask people to go check out what he does. I mean, he works, he's worked in Gaza. He's gone to, um, you know, Sandy Hook where there's been school shootings. He goes wherever there's a need to help heal the trauma, to help people cope. He goes to, you know, Native American reservations and he literally goes anywhere that, that it's needed with his teams. And um, his motto is teaching thousands to heal millions. So of all of the, I've gone through other stress reduction groups and done all these things. And a lot of them are very proprietary and like, you know, kind of like, this is our information. He's like, just get it out there, disseminate this information as much as you can, because he knows that's how we're going to heal the world is by teaching people how to help themselves. And then they can teach it to the next person and then Mm -hmm. they can teach to the next person. And then it's just going to have this massive ripple effect where we all can help manage ourselves and help other people. And I'm just so passionate about that. I think if we can learn these tools and then share them with other people, whatever the powers that have so much control over the things that we, we don't in life, again, the food system, the whatever, we're going to be able to like better ride, navigate those situations mm-hmm. um, because we can't necessarily always stop them. I mean, we're trying, right? We're trying to stop you know, racism, and we're trying to stop all these things. But while we're still in the thick of it, it may not, these things may not change in our lifetime. We have to learn to be kind to each other and to help one another at the smaller level. Um, Yeah, grassroots. Yeah. So that's what I'm passionate about. And, you know, anyone who wants to talk to me about that, please reach out. I mean, talk about having a purpose, huh? Yeah, I think that's what we and we all have a role in it. Like, don't think that you or anyone listening is any less important. Everybody we can all do this. It's something we really are called to do. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So what's next for you in your advocacy journey and in your wellness journey? Yes. Um, so in my wellness journey, you know, again, every time I have a flare up, I kind of start to reevaluate. And again, this time I've really gotten back to the mind body. It's what I needed and it's what I'm teaching. So it's kind of like that usually happens, right? We teach what we need. So just, I think I told you right before my first kind of eight week group, I started in with this major flare up and I'm like, Oh God, am I going to be able to do this? But I'm like, no, this, this is good because it's helping me remember why these tools work and why they're so powerful. So I'm just planning on upping my mind body medicine game personally. And then it kind of translates into what's next for me professionally, which is I've started these eight week mind body medicine, stress reduction and trauma healing groups. And, um, 
So I'm just going to keep doing them bang one right after another. Right now I'm only doing one at a time because I want to try to focus on the people I'm working with in those groups. If there becomes a bigger need and I can serve more people, I may do two at two at a time. But um, but yeah, I'm just going to, I'm committed to keep doing this because I feel like I see, like I said, people who were not aware that they had trauma kind of as an undercurrent. And then this pandemic, boom, okay, we're faced again with, is the world a safe place? Are certain people safe to be around? We're kind of questioning. It's opening up a big can of worms for a lot of people who at some point in their life felt like the people around them weren't safe to be around or the, the world is not a safe place. And we've all their gotten bodies that. not safe to be in. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm seeing a lot of people really struggling. So I just want to keep getting this work out um, to people so that they can get some relief because, you know, chronic illness is suffering, but to me, the, the worst suffering has been in my mind through this whole thing, the fears of it's, it's not the, it's not the physical stuff. It's really the, it's the fears, it's the anxieties and it's the not trusting that if you go to a doctor, they're going to help you. The people who are supposed to help you are going to help you. So I really want to bring people some relief from whatever their demons in their minds that are, you know, old traumas or anxieties that they're suffering from. I just want to give people relief from that because it's so painful. I'm so grateful to know such an empathic and kind soul as you. Mm. Can you remind me? Mutual. Thank you, Sharon. Can you remind everyone where they can find you if they want to work with you or engage with your work on some level, where can they find you? Sure. So they can find me on my website, which is intendedholisticwellness.com. On social media, it's intended well. Um, And yeah, either one of those, you know, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So reach out any way that works for people. Um, Yeah. And I'm just big again on um, I think one of the hardest things in wellness is that it's such a privileged thing and I'm really passionate about making it not. So I try to help people mm-hmm. answer their questions. I don't know if they work with me or not. I try to give people something to go on. So please feel yeah. free to reach out. I love that. Sharon, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's such a pleasure to hear more of your story, to really connect more on these deeper discussions. And I'm so honored to have had you on and I can't wait for everyone to hear your message because it is one of love and wholeness and, you know, reaching out to reach within. So Sharon Leggio Falchuk, thank you so much. Thank you. It was an honor. You're amazing. Oh, you are. (laughs) That's it folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.